Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. As we pivot to technology and your role in end folks, uh, are you a data guy at the core? I mean, is that where you start? What do you, what do you consider your brand from a technologist perspective? Well, you know, when I was uh, part of IBM, it was more, I was uh, more part of the uh, the WebSphere uh, solution sets that IBM mm-hmm. had. So I wouldn't say that I'm a, I'm a data guy, but, uh, you know, data ended up, the information management portfolio became one of the largest brands within IBM. And so I had to morph myself because I had to embrace that. And so today I'm definitely a data guy, you know, and uh, this is our, our company, for example, in folks, it's a, it's a data and AI company. And, uh, you know, we are essentially in the, in the business of moving data and getting it ready for cloud for, for business insights and all that stuff. And uh, so that's the software solution set that we have rolled out and our services team are, are experts in that. We are a technology company but uh, we have built out a great offering around data and, and we are good at what we do. So what are you spending most of your time on moving data, um, like ETL or AI or all of the above within folks? I would say we spend a lot of time modernizing, uh, modernization projects where, you know, you look at, uh, there are still a lot of uh, companies that are sitting on, on dinosaur systems that could be like 15, 20 years old and they sort of struggle with like, how do we move this to the cloud? And they feel that they are kind of stuck in there. They are stuck in that in that uh, in that time zone where it's going to be very difficult for them to get out of that. You know, and this is where we come in, and we have been quite successful in taking this data and modernizing, moving them to the cloud, whether it's uh, on the ETL side of the business or on the governance side of business. Uh, you know, governance is is actually a very, very complex problem because we, we need to ensure that when we are we are ingesting the data for analytics or any type of business insights, uh, that data stems from truth. And if you have all sorts of different types of uh, footprints of data, then it becomes very, very difficult for us to understand uh, what we are seeing. If, if you have used, for example, like ChatGPT or any of these uh, different uh, LLMs, we sometimes see garbage out. And uh, it takes us a little bit of discernment to figure out that, okay, this what just came out is garbage. It's because the data model at the back end, the, you know, or, or the algorithm, something is broken somewhere, right? So similarly, I, I think when we look at uh, this whole governance uh, it, it can be broken, and uh, our job is to fix that. You know, so we focus heavily with uh, ETL solutions. We focus with governance, and now recently, what we've also done is uh, uh, looked at uh, the whole IBM offering with uh, the Lake House. What's an extra data? And we have built out certain software offerings that uh, help make it easier for customers to move to the Lake House. You know, so we are keeping up with the times. We, we are innovating and uh, we have some great ideas that we are currently working on. And uh, it's an exciting time to be here at Enfolks. You mentioned Watson X at IBM. Watson X is, is on AI platform. So we got three, three areas, Watson X.AI itself. So you can have an IDE around creating models or using existing models, complementing models, whatever. 
then you can have data and governance. It looks like your sweet spot in Infoq's data solutions is more on the data and governance side. And that's where you spend a lot of your time. Is that true? That, that, that is correct, yes. When, when you spend most of your time on that data side and governance side, likely to support some of the foundational models you reference, what do companies that use your services need to think about when it comes to modernizing their data stack? Well, essentially, I think uh, there is a lot of, uh, you, you know, essentially barriers that companies uh, have formulated uh, that, okay, it is difficult to move forward. You know, we are, uh, this is, uh, we, the systems have been working fine. And uh, and then when we try to modernize, we always find it very challenging. So they end up not moving forward. I, I think there needs to be a, a, a mind switch where, you know, companies should feel that it is an imperative. It's It's a question of survival for us to modernize our IT infrastructures, our, our software. And uh, that that mindset switch will end up ensuring that these type of, types of projects will, will find viability within the company. Otherwise, you know, it's very easy to be stuck in that, in that same quagmire. And uh, okay, if things are not broken, let's not uh, try to fix anything. But that's, that's really not how companies can move forward and how they can stay competitive. For example, with the, uh, with the, I call it the ABCs, the analytics, the the business insights, uh, artificial intelligence, business insights, and cloud. I think companies need to have a strategy on this, and uh, and and I I think uh, that is really the imperative for each company to start thinking in those terms. Because if not, then you're going to fall behind, and that will lead to an eventual demise down the road. What does Infoqs offer that other organizations or companies not offer? I mean, how are you differentiated? Well, firstly, I think we we have depth with the technology. You know, when it comes to, uh, we have built out, for example, our services team, we hired the very best. Uh, you know, we are out and out a technology company and we want to make sure that when we hire people, they are the best of minds that join us. That's, that's step one. Secondly, what we have done is, I say that, our best of minds, uh, we are also a little bit lazy. And, uh, you know, we don't like to leave things to chance when we are working on these complex uh, projects. So what we have done is we have done a huge amount of automation and we have built out these software assets that were, and, uh, that were been used on a fairly repeatable basis. And then we have essentially, over time, uh, these have become very robust software products that have been used again and again in different services engagements or to modernize or to move data. And, and that I believe is the secret sauce that we bring to the table. Uh, we don't see a lot of, uh, many of our competition doing that. You know, many a times they might be working on similar projects, but uh, they have the, the brute force manual approach. Whereas what we do is we have optimized the heck out of this where we can deliver it at about 70% uh, reduction of time. And, uh, and, and then uh, with the different dashboards that we have built, we will actually show that, look, when we move the data out, it worked because look at this 100% of the data got moved out. And if there's a failure, we will actually show that in the dashboard and, and allow the opportunity to fix that. You know? So essentially, we take the human error away in terms of how we run our different projects 
and the software tools that we have built. So if I'm a if I'm a client listening right now, I mean you also mentioned it. You know, sometimes uh, I don't know if it's laziness or it's just clients don't know where to start. How do I modernize? They know they need to modernize. AI's of interest. What's your answer to that? What's your two minute pitch of you know? Here's how you get started. Here's how end folks can can help you. And if you're thinking about us right now, here's what you should do. Yes. So we make it very easy for for customers. Uh, we we do a free assessment, and the very first step is uh, you know call us. We will send you a questionnaire that you fill up, and then we'll provide you a free assessment of what it takes for you to modernize. For example. When it comes to data stage, uh, ETL solutions, you know, with our questionnaire, we get a sense of uh, what the landscape is. And uh, and then we basically run our assessment and we churn out a viewpoint of how complex the current ETL uh, environment is and uh, into into easy, medium, hard. And, and then we give uh, an estimate of what it would take for the customer to, to modernize, to move those jobs over to, let's say, the next-gen environment. We make it easy. You know, the assessment, the free assessment that we offer is, is a great step for for any any customer that is looking to modernize to consider bringing in end folks. There is no risk in there and will provide you a clear visibility of the roadmap uh, that we need to take to, to modernize. Is it all services or do you offer products as well? Yes, uh, it's both. I would say we are 50% a services company and 50% a product company. The products are completely integrated with uh, with services. And in fact, uh, our products are uh, currently with IBM procurement. We are going through to get a product ID that will make it easy for IBM customers to, to consume our products. And uh, I, I think that's a testament also to the value that our products have delivered for IBM and IBM's customers. Can you give me a, just a quick sample of products we're talking about? Yes. Uh, so uh, DataDio Smart Diff, it basically provides a dashboard to display the success of the data movement or the failures. And uh, it's uh, none of our competition actually offers something like this. Then we also have the... Uh, the data duo's ETL transformation engine, which essentially moves the server jobs to parallel jobs and the parallel to parallel jobs. So essentially, it's helping uh, ETL customers modernize with the data duo's. There is a human, huge amount of automation where we reduce the time by almost 70 or 80% once we use our data duo solutions. And finally, with uh, data duo's, uh, uh, the uh, synchronization product that we have, we are essentially able to synchronize any types of governance solutions. Uh, we are helping customers modernize from uh, the old IBM IGC governance catalog to the Watson Knowledge catalog using our product. But also we can synchronize, for example, uh, uh, Watson Knowledge catalog with uh, Apache Atlas. Uh, we have built out certain flavor of our governance uh, tool where we can take uh, IBM competition and move them into the Watson Knowledge Catalog. So uh, it's it's a it's a very very uh, robust product that we have built out, and uh, it doesn't handle all the use cases. But because of the framework that we have built into our data DOS products, we can literally flip and uh, make something else. Uh, it takes us about 
two to three weeks to handle other funky use cases that perhaps our system, our software does not address today. And, and then beyond that, we also have many other products. For example, with, uh, with whatsnx.data, we have built out a workload assessment tool, which essentially allows uh, us to analyze different types of workloads in a non-IBM environment. And then we have built out a fairly simple ROI statement. What would it take for a customer to move to the lake house by moving these types of workloads to the lake house? And over the next three to five years, the, the return on investment would be, let's say, a million, $2 million. It makes it very easy for IBM customers to say, okay, I see that uh, the Watson Extra data is a new offering from IBM, but there is a clear value prop because I can save millions of dollars by moving certain workloads over to the lake house. So it's, it's a, we are quite uh, happy with uh, how we have uh, engaged with this uh, solution and uh, we are looking for a very interesting Q4 and helping IBM win a lot of business uh, with, uh, with Watson X.data. Can you mention a few of those use cases? Uh, use cases specific to, uh, to specific to in folks in in what like what are the most common use cases you're finding yourself working on? I mean, you may have mentioned a little bit before, but I just want to summarize in terms of if I'm out there listening, what use cases I should reach out to in folks for. So the first use cases with the ETL uh, uh, data stage is an area of expertise that we have to modernize data stage and. Uh, you know, to move to data stage next gen or to move to a cloud. Yes, we have expertise there. The second use case is with the, the governance solutions. We have deep expert expertise with Watson Knowledge Catalog. We can uh, synchronize Watson Knowledge Catalog. Uh, we can, we can uh, upgrade uh, IGC, which is the IBM governance catalog, the old version into, into the Watson Knowledge Catalog. We can also synchronize uh, any type of governance solution into the Watson Knowledge Catalog. So, so that's uh, the use case number two. And the third use case is with respect to ensuring that when we are moving data, whether we are working with data stage or Watson Knowledge Catalog or DB2 or Netiza, anytime we are moving data, we, how, how do we ensure the success of the data? So the SmartDiff product that we have essentially showcases that. And in fact, uh, SmartDiff, we, we actually apply it to almost every project where we are involved with moving data. Uh, finally, we are also working with uh, a data observability product called DataBand from IBM. We are currently working with uh, uh, in conversations with the engineering team to build out certain integration solutions uh, that would fall under our, our data, data duos. And, uh, and uh, so that is currently in the works. But uh, anytime you have issues with pipeline where you really don't know where the data was, where the pipeline was broken, which is impacting your business, uh, 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 business dashboards, your business insights, then uh, DataBand is a great fit for you. And, uh, and we have the skills there as well. And finally, with uh, whatsnx.data, uh, we have the ability to understand complex workloads and uh, move them into the lake house to deliver some pretty dramatic cost savings to to our customers. 
By the way, for those listening, you can check out the the lake house, IBM Lake House, which is essentially, I'll give it very high level, but a, a warehouse with the flexibility of data lake. So in other words, you use the right engine for the right workload altogether built on on AI. So I love, Rishi, that uh, all the IBM that you're working on, I, I, and I'm kind of getting the the idea that they're our best partner. But I presume Absolutely. you also work with other other vendors as well. Yes, we we do, but you know, we uh, IBM is our strategic partner, and we spend a lot of time. In fact, uh, Al, we met at uh, Think in Orlando, and then since then, mm-hmm. we traveled to Think in Canada, in Toronto. Then we were in Think uh, Australia, Sydney, and uh, Singapore, and uh, Mumbai, and then we are also heading over to London. So we are definitely a strategic IBM partner. We like uh, hearing that. And we like to invest a lot of time and energy into making sure that we are helping IBM win. Uh, that's terrific. We need great partners like yourself. Hey, um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot one last time. I got a couple more questions, and then we'll we'll call it good. If you could, thank you for being such a a great guest and answering all my questions. The first question I have for you is: We're kind of wrapping up here. Is how does that background, that technology background, help you in your your back to your political career? Where does it really serve you best and how does that differentiate what you're able to bring to the table? You would think in California, particularly in Silicon Valley, you'd have a lot of folks that have a a technical background. From what I'm hearing for you, it's not quite as common as we might think. Yes. uh, What I've seen is, I mean, uh, as an elected leader here, I would come across like hundreds of elected leaders and not many of them would, would, would be from that tech background. Because, uh, and I truly don't know what the reason is because, well, probably because the public sector has a reputation of uh, of been a little bit of a laggard when it comes to actually trying to get stuff done. You know, people feel that the public sector is very slow and uh, it's not for me. I see around me some of the very brightest of minds uh, who are CTOs and CEOs in the Valley, and they would never even dream of ever entering the public sector. So I, I think when I look at my track record, I believe like people who have a tech background think a little differently. You know, we have a slightly different approach to problem solving. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, I would tell this uh, as a council member, I would always try to cut to the chase. And uh, if I saw uh, activity for the sake of activity or things that were not really going to generate results, I would sort of cringe and turn away from that because it's like a waste of my time. If I'm going to find, now city council member is a voluntary role with a very limited stipend. It's not a paid position. So if I'm going to find time to volunteer for this role, I should not be interested in in activity for the sake of activity. I should actually try to find solutions. And that's how I approach the public sector. And again, it goes back to my roots as a, as a technologist, where you're always trying to solve problems for, for customers, for, for internally, you know, as you're rolling out new products or whatever else, you're always driven by a motivation of making things happen, of getting things done. And, and this is where that, that, that mindset that I have brought to the public sector has been extremely effective. And that's the reason why, you know, in spite of the loss last year, uh, at 43%, we are not giving up. We believe that someone like me can can really make a lot of good things happen because you, you know there is a lot more money to be made in the in the in the in the 
in the innovation economy here i would say right been part of the silicon valley uh, tech uh, technology uh, economy there is a lot more money to be made compared to gaining into politics so obviously the aspiration of mine is not to to make the 200 million dollars that uh, that other politicians may have done in washington my aspiration is to be there to solve problems and i believe with my background with my heritage with some of the stuff that i've gone through working for companies like ibm and cisco i can be very effective that's my secret sauce and uh, let's let's uh, see we would love to make this happen and get there to washington and uh, try to get stuff done there one more thing on technology crypto can you say a few words i know you you made mention of it earlier you say you're an advocate for a strong crypto policy um, crypto is an interesting beast right now. And you made a couple of references to other countries and that kind of thing. I always go back. One thing that kind of sticks with me is, is Charlie Munger's view on crypto. And he's not very kind. I mean, he, I, I was looking at his quote. He said, he had said a, a cryptocurrency is not a currency, not a commodity and not a security. Instead, it's a gambling contract with nearly hundred percent edge to the house Obviously, the U- U.S. should now enact a, a new federal law that prevents this from happening. I, I, I got to believe you're a little bit different. You think he is, he may be a great investor, but you think he's behind the times on this? I'd, I'd like your view on crypto. Well, it's very similar to AI. You know, I think on one hand, I see Washington, the gerontocracy in Washington, uh, calling out lots of calling out AI as evil. But, you know, the impact of this is like uh, out of the world. I mean, how can you not embrace that? You know, I think, yes, there, there can be some guardrails with respect to how we go about adopting AI. But if we call it 100% evil, then we are doing a huge disservice to our American citizens, you know. And, uh, and, and very similarly, when I see crypto, uh, there is an opportunity there. And if we don't invest time and energy, like, and I've been very open about Gary Gensler, the SEC chief. Uh, he's very, very anti-crypto. To some extent, I believe, I believe the reason why we, Washington is very anti-crypto is because they are trying to prevent the de-dollarization and the global standard that the, that the dollar has. Because yes, if that happens, there is a huge risk for the future of the US economy. And in fact, I believe that for President Biden, that is the single most important imperative at hand. And that's the reason why we have a policy which is sort of like anti-crypto. But at the end of the day, you know, we cannot stop the wheels of change. When you look at uh, the shift to de-dollarize, it's happening. What, why not we lead the world with crypto? I mean, we have the best and brightest of minds here. And we, we have written a white paper on the CBDC, for example, the central bank digital currency. Uh, and China has already rolled out a pilot on that. So I think we have fallen behind. And, you know, my take is there can always be something good that comes out from this. Uh, it's it's not perfect. Like crypto is not perfect, especially based upon the fiasco we have seen with, uh, with FTX and uh, all this stuff that played out over the last uh, year or so. It's not perfect. But also the reason why it was we didn't have the guardrails. We didn't have guardrails in place. And it was the wild, wild west where, you know, 20-year-olds were thinking that, hey, we could uh, we could do what we want and get away with it, right? So to some extent, I think Washington is to blame for that. But at the same time, we have to embrace this as an opportunity. And this is where AI is an opportunity. Crypto is an opportunity. We need to 
lead the world. We need to lead the world. We cannot l- lose ground to countries in Asia that are really breathing down our neck. So, so that's that's what I believe in. You know, I think we need to we need to explore this for the next uh, five, ten, fifteen years and see where this takes us. You know, because if if there is a de-dollarization that is likely and impending, then we need to have a plan B, and crypto could be that plan. You know, in some sense, I don't I don't know what to think anymore. The comment that I mentioned that Charlie made, sometimes I can't tell if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or not, meaning if you don't put the guide rails to your point, you're going to get a result like FTX. In other words, you could make a case that we created ourselves. What would happen if we put the guardrails in and embraced it? Um, you know, I, I don't know. We, we've not done that yet, although we are seeing other countries do that. So I, I, I you know, your comments are, are, are welcome. I do get the fact that I think the biggest worry there is is to de- devalue the, the the dollar or destabilize the dollar, which I'm sure our politicians are super fearful of. Yes, and you know when I look at you know if you look at the last hundred two hundred years, the innovation has happened here in America, and every every change, every technology shift that we see should be considered as an opportunity. And and this is me, the Silicon Valley geek talking. If you talk to Washington politicians, they'll probably disagree. And it's it's absolutely fine. But I see it as a huge opportunity that should not be, we should leave no stone unturned to explore that because our very future as the most powerful nation in the world could be at stake because of that, you know. So I, I think, and, and, and the, the, there is no reason for us not to because we, we definitely have the brain power I mean, when we look at America, we have the best of brains that are here right now. So why not we explore that and see where we can take that? And 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 then when I look at, for example, Exodus Communications, you're right. Uh, this was a company in the early 2000s, and they started with a specific business plan as a startup, and they pivoted, and they pivoted in such an amazing, incredible way that they became a billion-dollar company overnight, right? So you never know what comes out of it. All we have to do is we have to chase it, chase it, chase it, and we'll eventually find the light at the end of the tunnel, you know. Hey, where can folks reach you? If they're looking for you, where can they reach you? Well, the best way to reach me is uh, through my website, rishikumar.com. My email is rishi at rishikumar.com. And N folks, where's the best place to reach N folks? Yes, uh, it's rishi at nfolksdata.com. What do you do for fun, man? Doesn't sound like you're getting much fun if I listen to your wife. But uh, if you could, or if you do get out for fun, what is it? You know, uh, we try to take these vacations. I really enjoy the beach vacations. And uh, and that's probably just chilling and relaxing and doing nothing. And uh, I, I really enjoy doing that. Uh, other than that, it's uh, basically, I would say my fun is politics because I live and breathe that, I enjoy that. And uh, it's, I would say it's very life fulfilling. So it may not be fun from your lens, perhaps, Al, but uh, it, it does uh, create a lot of excitement for me. Well, actually, to be honest with you, I do, I, I do enjoy politics. I do a lot of study in, uh, on politics. We could, we, I could do a full day with you, I think, on, on just politics alone, but I wanted to get the technology in as well. The other thing I enjoy is investing. Investing is probably my my primary for fun. That's you know not if I'm not outside, you know, on the lake or on on the beach myself. So I think we got some things in common there. So come 
November, December, what does that mean? I, I presume you're going to get really busy here in the coming months. Yes, uh, the election is in March. Uh, right now, there are no challenges. So uh, hopefully, we don't have to run a campaign. But uh, we'll see how that goes. And uh, and then uh, it's really after March where all the madness happens. Uh, the March madness begins, where we have to run a pretty hard campaign and try to topple an incumbent who's been there 44 years in political office. And the incumbent will be wow. 82 years old next year. Yes. So we believe the time is now that uh, I think folks are quite disillusioned with the uh, with politicians who never seem to want to leave office. Uh, when you look at Dianne Feinstein, who will be 92 years old next year. So the time is now, and we believe that we can win this. And uh, and then you can only have, once you are in Washington, you have to give up on all the other jobs. And uh, at that point, we'll have to leave and folks and uh, be part of that Washington innovation economy, I would say. <laughs> And I'm looking forward to that. Politics uh, or holding political office, look, it didn't used to be a career position. But now, to your point, it's like these are career politicians. I, I feel like they lose sight of who they're representing because they're they're representing the other politics or the other po- politicians uh, at some point when you're in there for over 40 years. I mean, my goodness. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, the way the system is geared, you know, the, the party tends to, you know, have a whip. <laughs> And they whip everybody into shape. And if you don't comply, then they make life difficult for you. So very quickly, you know, if you're a if you're a rookie elected leader in Washington or Sacramento, you are essentially told that you know compliance is key. If you don't comply, uh, life will become very hard for you if you want to win your next run. And that's how they get people to follow the herd. Everybody is following the herd down a cliff. And, uh, and and this is a culture that is absolutely wrong. I see similarities in, in Sacramento. I see similarities in Washington as well. And we need to fix that somehow, you know. We need to fix that. And uh, when you look at these politicians, for example, we see Nancy Pelosi. She's uh, 82 years old this year. And, uh, you know, with, with the state of affairs in San Francisco, I, I was watching Twitter and a lot of people wanted a change. They said, let's get a new congressional leader. But Nancy Pelosi wants to run again. And yeah, some of the excuses. Yeah, and, and, and the, the statement that she made, people were dissecting the statement. Like, really? I mean, it, it sort of didn't make sense. But when she's running, then there are other elected leaders who say, if she's running, then I'm running too. So nobody's leaving because they are all like, okay, you know, I don't know what the aspiration. In fact, uh, my podcast on Thursday is on this exact topic. Like, why are these politicians not leaving? And I have my own theories on that. You know, it's very interesting. But but unfortunately, with all of them staying on, it's the American people who are truly suffering right now. No, no, no disagreement. I, I just, I, I don't even know what to say. I can't even respond to that. What podcast are you referring to? I'll, I'll, I'll give it a plug. This is called Game Changers. Uh, that's coming up uh, on Thursday. Uh, it's a Palo Alto-based uh, podcast, and I've been on it a couple of times. And we are going to talk about the trust factor in American politics and gerontocracy on Thursday. Awesome. Hey, Rishi, thank you so much for being here. I'm glad we finally got to hook up. I learned a lot from you. It's not many times that I get a technologist that is a politician on the same podcast. Well, I don't know if I've ever had a politician now that I come to think about it. I've had people that have been in politics. I've had a couple of people that have 
even flown on Air Force One, but I don't know that I, I have had anybody that I can recall offhand that is actually running for office. So very insightful. Thank you for being here. It's great to be here, Al, and I really liked your your flow of questions. The conversation just like flowed from <laughs> one thing to another. It was a very, very interesting. Uh, it's already like uh, an hour, 15 minutes is what I see. So obviously, we were having fun in our conversation. Thank you so much. Great luck on folks, and uh, look, great luck on your political campaign. A lot of work, man. I hope you get some sleep as well. That, that would be <laughs> beneficial. Probably make your wife happy as well. <laughs> For sure. You might want to take her on vacation at some point. And before yes. March, because I think when March rolls around, you're in trouble. You're going to have yes, to be working right. 24 by 7 at that point. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate you being here as always. Hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and we do react accordingly. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks, Al. 